Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode 67 with uh, former Navy SEAL sniper Brandon Webb, the second part of our interview. You can find him on Twitter, Brandon T. Webb. He was formerly a sniper with SEAL Team 3. This is part two of this interview. If you haven't listened to part one, Take some time. Go ahead. Go do it right now. I'll still be here when you get back. Thank you so much to everybody that subscribed during the week. Very, very big welcome to you. There's plenty of other episodes to check out. Um, if you want to subscribe to the mailing list as well, I'll let you know about when new episodes come out and um, I won't ever spam you. You can uh, subscribe at osherginsberg.com. Please, if you like this show, the biggest thing you can do for me is to tell a friend about this show. That's all I ask of you. Just Show someone how to put a podcast on their phone. A lot of people don't know how to do it still, but load up a couple of shows, maybe load up this one because um, I believe the independent director audience broadcasting is the way of the future and here we are. We're in it, you and me. We're doing it together. Feels good, doesn't it? Feels good. Brandon Webb is also very big into the independent broadcasting, um, which I'm a big fan of and we talk a bit about that in this interview. Just to check in with you this week, I took two days to go mobile. We're going mobile. Um, that's my terrible Bane impression. Uh, I took two days off this week, headed up to Mammoth, which is a ski mountain about five hours out of Los Angeles North. And uh, I've got to tell you, America, it is a beautiful country. The drive up to Mammoth is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Once you get out of Los Angeles and you come down into the Antelope Valley and then you drive, you take a right and uh, you drive up through the Mojave Desert which is remarkable and it slowly gives way to this huge glacial valley um, up into the high Sierra, the high desert. The desert starts to get about four or 5,000 feet. There's big, big mountains around you. Mount, Mount Whitney's out there, which is the highest mountain in the lower 48 states. It's humongous. It's up on the left. Uh, but it was fun to be skiing. I used to snowboard and then I started skiing. I'll tell you that story another time. It goes along with how I changed my name. The story's out there. Yeah, I'll let you find it. Um, how am I going? Uh, interesting week. It seems for every three steps I take forward, I take two back, but I end up one step ahead of where I was. So it can be a bit, you know, like jump-starting a manual car. It's a little tricky back and forth, but I'm getting there. I'm still having some tough days, uh, as I'm sure anyone that's going through anything still has tough days, but they are getting a little... A little easier, like, but sliver by sliver. Uh, the analogy I would use would be that it's like you're putting one piece of paper down on another piece of paper. You've only got two pieces of paper on top of each other, but by the time you get 500 on there, you've got a big, chunky, fat phone book, uh, 
why should I talk about a phone book? You don't know what a phone book is. There's a thing we used to have phone numbers in when we used to remember phone numbers. Uh, like a ream of paper that you would shove in a printer, you know, that's big, thick, it's heavy, it's hard to pierce. But um, it, I only build it like one sheet of paper at a time. So that's kind of how I'm doing it. But it, I try not to get frustrated. I just have to remember that even though I do go forward and fall back, I am falling back further forward than where I was earlier. Does that make sense? Yeah. Anyway, I got an email this week. Someone was asking me about what meds I'm on. I appreciate that you asked. Thank you very much. I'll keep it to myself if you don't mind. Uh, a few is my answer. Uh, but what I would say to you about uh, being on meds, uh, I'll, I'll draw an analogy with my bicycle. I have a, a road bike. So I'm one of those middle-aged men that gets in a Lycra and rides up the hills on the weekends or the weekdays or whenever I can find time. Um, this week, I put a bigger gear set on the back of my bike just to give me a little more help up the hills i took it out for a spin this morning in the wet which i do love because there's never anybody else out there but it was good i i took it out for a spin on my uh myself this morning by myself and i guess the analogy there would be some people might resist putting the bigger gears on the back because it does make it a little easier to pedal to the top of the hill because it makes it easier to pedal to the top of the hill but guess what i get to the top of the hill and I think I even got to the top of the hill faster because it wasn't taking so much energy just to push forward. I was able to move forward a little easier because I had this bigger gear at my disposal. And that's what I would say to you about my experience with being on meds. You still have to push. You still have to work. You still sweat. You still pant. You still hurt. But it's just a little easier. And that's my experience with it anyway. Um, but yeah, please keep your emails coming. If you want to email me, you can. Just write an email back to the um, mail out that I send when you subscribe. Uh, Oshaginsberg.com is where you can uh, where you can subscribe to that email. I'll just write back to the mailer that you get there and uh, I read them all. My guest today is uh, still Brandon Tyler Webb, an amazing guy. This is part two of the interview. He was formerly on SEAL Team 3. He's a former SEAL sniper. Um, if you want to listen to part one of the interview, go right ahead. It would make this second part of the interview make a lot more sense. He's a remarkable man. Um, in the first part of the interview, he talked about less than a month after 9-11 being in the caves of Afghanistan hunting Osama bin Laden. He's written more than six books. He's a New York Times bestseller. Red Circle is his uh, current book. Among Heroes is coming out in a few weeks. Uh, he has a very, very interesting story to tell. And again, I've got to reiterate how much of an unassuming man he is. He's charming. He's uh, He's got a lovely smile. And you look at him and you have to kind of think, this guy's a sniper. In fact, he's such a good sniper. He then became the person who taught other snipers how to be snipers, which means that he's looked down the scope of his rifle and, as he put it, fired a shot in anger. And we do get into that. In this second part of the interview, Brandon gets very deep in this conversation. There are some descriptions, some very graphic descriptions of what goes on in battle. Heads up, uh, some of it's not pretty. I really have to thank Brandon so very much for being so open. I, I don't know, in any other context, I might have been coming across as nosy. I was actually just really curious. I really wanted to know. And... He answered very honestly and very openly and very generously, all while maintaining a respect for what it is that he did and didn't glorify, in my opinion, didn't glorify in any way what he did. Later in this conversation, Brandon reflects very candidly his thoughts on the effectiveness of the use of force as a tool to peace. And I say this, but I'll say it now, hearing someone who's seen what he's seen and done what he's done, talk the way he talks about the current strategy is very interesting. He's a really fascinating guy. Um, you can find him on Twitter. Let him know you heard him here. He's at Brandon T. Webb with two Bs. Let him know you heard him. Check out his podcast, sofrep.com, S-O-F-R-E-P.com. Like I said, some of this subject matter may be a little tough for you to hear. I encourage you to approach this with an open mind. Um, and again, regardless of how you might feel about the, the policies that deploy men and women like Brandon out into the world carrying guns, 
I hope that you can hear that when the people who make those decisions, who are often behind a desk or behind a computer monitor, thousands of miles from the danger, when they make those decisions and send people like Brandon into the front lines, Brandon will pick up his bag, leave his family and go into that danger. And this is an interesting insight into what it is to be a person who does that and a person who faces the reality that some of the people he's going over there with may not come back, which we do talk about in this show. We pick up our conversation where Brandon is answering a question that I asked. I asked him about what part of the training that him and his peers went through prepares men and women for the realities of carrying out the missions they're assigned in war zones. As a sniper, um, and a sniper later in my career, I became an instructor and, and was in charge of the program. A piece of the program that I developed that I'm really proud of is um, I really focused on the mental management aspect and positive mindset. That was a big focus of mine. And I built this program in this class I taught. And it was something where I grabbed bits and pieces from from the athletes in the Olympic arena because there's a certain mindset, right? There's there's a person, there's an athlete or, you know, even you see it on pro sports and there's that, it's what separates the champions, like the Michael Jordans from the rest of the, the group, the David Beckhams from the rest. Um, and I'm sure... You know, I'm missing some names in Australia, right? But <laughs> both of those sports yeah. are very well known. Don't worry. So, you know, what separates that the champions and, and at that moment of pressure, where how how can they deal with it and perform and, and raise their performance under immense amount of pressure? So, we studied this, and and the story that I wanted to share that I mentioned earlier is just the power of um, positive thought, positive, and we we switched our whole way of teaching in the course to um, positive, we'd give positive corrections. So if I see a student that's having problems on the rifle, I don't tell him all the things I see going wrong. I just tell him, and he may be doing 10 things, like I'm noticing 10, 10 mistakes. I don't want to program him either because he's new, he's, he doesn't, he's learning. So I'm just going to tell him the three things that he needs to do proper, the three right things, and, and just tune him and pro, you know, put that in his head in a very positive way. Um, but really how, um, how you deal with situations and, and visualizing stuff in your head. And so as I'm like putting this program together, I end up hearing this story about a POW in Vietnam. This guy, I believe his name is Jack Sands, Captain Jack Sands. He was a Navy pilot, gets shot down over Vietnam, was a prisoner for over four years in the Hanoi Hilton. And he was an avid golfer. I, I don't golf. I love like the, I love the sport. I just never had the time for it. But this guy, that was his happy place. I mean, he's living in a concrete box. I've been to POW training for, for a week. It's terrible. I can only imagine what four years looks like. And he's going to his happy place. And it's, he's shooting golf on all his favorite courses. And that's kind of like how he's dealing with stuff. And Fast forward, he gets liberated from, from the prison. He, they fly him back to San Diego. He touches down at North Island. And they, you know, the ambulance shows up, and they've got a couple other POWs there. And you know, these guys are doing all right. But they're, you know, they have, they're way malnourished, you know, they're malnourished. The ambulance pulls past the back gate of, of the, I think it's the Admiral Baker Golf Course. And he looks at the golf course. His eyes light up. And he says, look, stop the car. And they're like, you're crazy. Like, we're going to go to the Naval Hospital and, and have you checked. He's like, no, you're not. You're going to stop the ambulance and let me out. So he goes to the clubhouse, you know, and they look at him at first, like, you know, who's going to throw out this homeless guy that just walked in here? He tells them who he is. They take him. They, these guys are like tearing up hearing his story. They take him into the clubhouse, get him kitted up because he tells them, he's like, I just want to play a full round of golf. He shoots around 18 holes. And he shoots at par, <laughs> having never picked up a club in over four years. Wow. And the guys look at him and they're like, how is this possible? And he says, I've been playing perfect golf in my head for four years. And so the power of like the conversations that we have with 
internally with ourselves and, and what we visualize in our head is extremely powerful and, and important. Yeah. Um, and so it's that kind of stuff that we would teach in the sniper program. And it's, you're probably getting like, you know, 10 of the best motivational, you know, you know, programs you could look at throughout the world and cram it into like a seal. Who knew that you're getting that in a seal sniper course yeah. as, as well. Right. Cause we would have speakers come in and stuff like that. So probably not something anyone would think or that we were, were doing in the sniper school. But when we started talking to these students and telling them that they were capable of greatness, we had these incredibly tough shooting tests. Um, you know, the out multiple yard lines out past, you know, a mile, um, two different tests. And we started telling the students it was okay to shoot a perfect score. We'd never had any student in the history shoot, like just clean it, like do a hundred, you know, perfect score on this test and a perfect score on this test same day. And as soon as we told them it was possible and they, we had taught them, you know, these, this mental management class that I used to teach, we started having students shoot perfect scores. They just started because it was like the normal thing to do. And our attrition rate, we used to, f to fail 30% of the class. So out of the 20 uh, sniper, SEAL sniper students that showed up, you know, 30% would go away. As soon as we put this new teaching method in, it dropped to 3% and just stay there. Like we, most of the time we graduated all of them. Wow. And our, these guys were going overseas working with units like the Australians and Norwegians and the Danish. And they started calling the schoolhouse asking me like, what are you teaching these guys? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like these Zen, these like these Zen snipers on the battlefield, right? Yeah. And they're like, you know, getting calm and, you know, breathing exercises and all this chaos going around them. And they're just focused in on this nice, you know picture and there is that they're in their zone and so it's pretty fascinating to think about we've talked about a lot today but i think you know you wouldn't be an instructor of snipers where you're not an excellent sniper yourself what's the actual you know what's it like when you when you've got someone in your scope so in my experience um you know, having, you know, fired a shot in anger on the, with, which is a, a term we use on the battlefield. Um, and in Afghanistan, fired a shot in anger. Yeah, that's just kind of a, you know, have you fired a shot in anger back at the enemy? It's oh, just okay. kind of a slang term. Oh, no, I get it. I get yeah. it. Um, which would probably be counter to what I just said about being Zen. <laughs> but it's, you know, I probably the, the moment that stands out for me the most was the shot that I didn't take. There was a, there was a, um, a time in the, in Zawarkilia cave complex I talked about where we kept like branching out and finding all this stuff. And, you know, one day mission turned into to, to 10 plus days where we were out there just discovering all sorts of things. And, um, we were, we were securing this village and I was as a sniper. You were on the hunt for IBL. Yeah, no, we Whoa. were legitimately. We, we actually found a, a poster, uh, an OBL poster in the caves that was pre 9-11 that had a picture of Bin Laden. It was an Al-Qaeda recruitment poster. It had a picture of Bin Laden and, and the picture of those planes crashing into the towers. It was all like cheesy Photoshop, but it was this big recruiting poster. Um, and it was pretty surreal. I've got a picture of it somewhere. Um, so I've got, I've got this guy in my sights um, and, and this is what a sniper struggles with, or maybe it's not a struggle, but it's like the situations they have to deal with, uh, which is relevant to the, this movie I'm, I'm going to go see tonight, this, the screening of American Sniper. You've got this, so I've got this person in my sights and he has, he's armed. So I, I have, under the rules of engagement of that time, I, I know I can pull the trigger right away. But I'm looking at the situation and I'm smart enough to figure out that it's a young man armed with an AK-47, but I'm reading the whole environment and my platoon's coming up to this, you know, this village and they're about to like, you know, figure out things on their end. It, either it's gonna be like a, an aggressive situation or it's, you know, they're gonna interact and defuse it. But I'm there right now to, to basically cover their movement up to the target. And I just, and I saw them running to get more guns 
and and I realized that they were they were not the enemy. They were because a lot of people in Afghanistan, if you understand the culture, you know, having a AK forty seven as a teenager in Afghanistan is like owning a surfboard in Australia. It's just the way life is. And I put it, I kind of read the whole situation because there was a moment I, I had that, what we call initial pressure on the trigger. Like I had this guy in my sights at 500 yards and I could have pulled the trigger. And I, I just was like, this is not a shot I want to live with. And in those moments stay with you in your, in your head, you know, they're like, they're like screenshots in your mind. Um, I remember the first time, um, the first time I considered, you know, taking someone's life was we were in contact with the enemy and they were on high ground in the caves. We were in a really bad situation. And my platoon commander Cassidy, we were with a squad, like a very small element. And thankfully we had these two air force radio controllers with us, um, who are the air force combat controllers and incredible people on the radio. In fact, we would they would get assigned to the SAS guys too. Um, we're there, and we had I didn't have a rangefinder, and we had to call a B fifty two and call an airstrike on on this group. And the you know Cassidy, who was now an astronaut, he looked at me. He said, "Brandon, he's like, I need you to like, you know, I need you to range this for me because we don't have a rangefinder, and you're a sniper, right?" He's really looking at me. He's like, "I need your best estimate." Cause we have to drop danger close to get out of this situation. Like this is, you know, it's a bad, bad deal. And so I go and I range it, you know, and there's gunfire exchanging um, back and forth. And, um, you know, you're dropping a thousand pound JDAM less than 500 yards away from your position. It's, it's like the stakes have never been higher. Right. And we call the, so I range it. And I figured, you know what, I'm going to range a little bit far because that way I can make a quick adjustment and drop the next one. And so I'm working with the combat controller and I'm giving him the magnetic bearing target, our, our position, magnetic bearing and range. And he calls in the coordinates and we hear, um, and I think what we did was we dropped the second when we gave him the long one. Okay, was so we dropped, I gave him, I estimated a little bit long. And so um, that one hit and it hit long. So I was like, okay, I'm, I should have went with what I, what I thought it was going to be, but I didn't, you know, it's not just me there. I didn't, I have all these other people I'm worried about. And so I adjusted and gave them the second range and it hit and it fucking rocked their world. But there's still, you know, people running around up in the caves. And then we, I ranged the second one, the guy called it in. And I remember we were, it was that close where you kind of had to roll over and open your mouth because the blast would knock the wind out of you. And I remember like rolling over with my rifle and just getting ready for the impact. And we could hear the, ra I could hear the radio calls. It was like everything slowed down and I can hear the radio in the earbud and he's, and the B-52 is like calling out 60 seconds to impact, you know, 10 seconds to impact. And then right in that moment, I could hear the wail of a baby crying in the background. And I thought, I was like, how dare you like take your family and involve your family in this? But these guys would, you know, and these are bad guys and they're, they're up there with their family. And I was like, you know, to this day, I feel like I don't lose sleep about that, but it, you know, it, I don't want to say haunts me, but it's something that I live with and hearing that wail of the baby cry. And then in, Seconds later, that bomb drops and everyone's gone. And it's rough, you know. And I open up the red circle. That's the first story I, right. I share in the very first part of the book. You'll read you'll read about it. You talk that's so sorry, I'm just if you could see my body language right now, I'm, I'm crawled <laughs> up in a corner in this chair I'm sitting in listening to listening to you tell me that story. Yeah. You talked about the shots you don't want to live with. Yeah. What about the shots that you do live with? Well, I think um, that's that's something that, you know, so in Afghanistan as a sniper, um, very different terrain. A lot of what I did was, um, so there was a situation where 
we knew where these enemy were. They were going, they had these small encampments and they were going back and forth across the border of Pakistan. Um, and me and, and my sniper partner at the time, Chris, we, Cassidy said, look, you guys go out on patrol, leave at two in the morning, come back. I'll see you next evening. So off we go. And we're, Chris and I, we start finding some people and we make the decision because um, there was multiple enemy, you know, in this, you know, whatever, 10 kilometer square grid. And we said, why don't we, rather than like shoot these guys, why don't we like stalk them, find out where they're camped out, and then we mark it with a GPS position. And so we found like seven of these encampments. And then, so we just marked them. And then we went back that evening and we glassed them with this, you know, we had these strong like Leica optics and, and Glass we watched- them to see them through a, a, tel a, a, yeah. a telescope or something. Yeah. And we see the little fires and the teapots and, you know, they're pretty good about it. I mean, they, you know, back to the Soviets, um, you know, they've got rocks around the fire to kind of contain the flame, but with, you know, those Leica optics are, are badass. Um, and so what we did was we got the radio, the Air Force guys, and we, one by one, we just called, we called in their positions and we like wiped them out in about 15 minutes. And so that was a lot, most of what I did as a sniper in, in Afghanistan was stuff like that, or, or you know, that, that story that I just yeah. told you. And so- um, But you mentioned having those screenshots, you mentioned. So it's it stays with you, I can see I can see it in my head and I don't, I'm fortunate enough to where I don't have, I didn't, and I say fortunate, I was never in a situation, like I feel good about all the situations I was in. I don't have that one where I, you know, I regretted shooting somebody. Like I probably would have carried that around with me um, if I had to taken that shot and shot that young villager. Um, and so I think about the guys in Iraq, like my friends, Chris Kyle and, and many others who have just, you know, as many kills as he does. He just, Chris was in a very awkward situation where from a, some means or another, he got propelled to celebrity within the military community yeah. and not by his own liking. Yeah, um, I've watched interviews with him getting ready for this. He doesn't look very comfortable talking yeah. about it. Yeah, and it's, it's not something he sought out. Hmm. And, and we know, like Chris and I both know that there's other guys out there that have just as many kills, but Iraq is a very different situation than Afghanistan. It's up close, you know, imagine like taking the fight to the streets of the New York, right? It's in close like yeah, that. Yeah. And those guys are having to make, you know, take many more shots and live with maybe taking a few bad ones. Um, I don't have any bad, like bad, what I consider bad ones I'm carrying around with me, but I do have, you know, you have these mental images. Yeah that I think that I live with. Like the one, the story I yeah. told you with the baby crying, yeah. um, you know, the village, you know, the, not shooting the villager, stuff like that I, I carry around with me. And um, I I did make it a point not to, to it's tell in this book, I, in the red circle, I didn't want to tell those kind of stories. Like not, like I didn't want to get graphic with the, you know, shooting stories and looking at the guys, you know, seeing dead guys. I. I tried to incorporate some of it, some of that ugliness of war, but not focus on it because I knew this was a book that I was writing for my kids. Yeah. And so the project that I'm working on now is actually um, called The Killing School. And it's because I had so many people ask me and and I'm, I mean, you're in you're in, you know, media, you you can you've been asked the inappropriate questions, right? These people are like, what do you where do you get off asking something like that? Um, but I, I got asked about like, you know, in the conversation you're having, like, it's a very, like, it's a very open dialogue and I, and I, you're coming from a position of respect and I totally respect and appreciate that. But I, but I kept getting these people, you know, like New York times, like, what's it like to end someone's life and this and that. And they were just getting like, what's it like to kill somebody? And, and I started thinking about it and, and I almost was like, okay, if you want it, here you go. Like, I'm going to give it to you in the killing school. And you're going to get it and you're going to wish you never asked that question because I'm going to like just open the throttle. So I'm, 
I'm excited about that book because I'm going to, you know, it's not written to offend people, but it's, it's, I'm going to give it to them and it's going to be raw and powerful. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about that book. And it's not just me. It's, it's my, all my friends that which, like guys like Chris Kiley. Which does lead me to, you know, my next question. Australia is a little, like, well, like I said, I was different in that I grew up with the military in my life, but it's, it's a little distant to a lot of people's lives. It's not quite like America where everyone, yeah. it's, a, it's so ingrained in the culture here before every baseball game, at the start of every football game, there's someone in uniform on screen. We just don't have that. Yeah. It's just not a part of it. It's just not a part of the culture. Um, what's your opinion on the, because I've seen it happen all the time here, uh, and I, I, I think it's great, the thank you for your service where people come up to someone. And- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Uniform or someone with a pin and say thank you for your service. What's your opinion on that? You know, I, I um, you know, I'm, I'm in the interesting position now because I literally, you know, I, the way the world works, right? I, I traded my sniper rifle. Now I run a digital media company. Mm, a very big one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and we've been around two and a half years. So it's like all this growth and, mm. and being on CNN or Fox News or whatever, um, and being in that environment and seeing it, stuff like that happen to me and other people, I, I don't, I don't have a problem with, I, I get, I get what, what people are trying to, they're just trying to say thank you. And I don't have an issue with that. Like I, I respect it. Um, I, we run one of our new sites and we did a very interesting article about hero worship. And it's like in this country, I, I think as a culture, we may have, have, you know, at, at times maybe celebrate war too much. I appreciate that the veterans these days in America don't have to deal with what, what the folks did in Vietnam. And Vietnam was a terrible situation. I mean, we're, you know, in hindsight, should have never been over there. But we had a draft. I mean, so here it's like these guys didn't have a choice. If you didn't have family connections, a lot of money in, in college, your ass is going to Vietnam. And then you come back and it's a very hostile environment. And so I think we, in some ways, we learned from that as a country and didn't want to have that happen. And 9-11 polarized the free world. I mean, when I was in Kandahar drinking tea with the Australian SAS guys or, or the Danish Frogman Corp, they were in it. They're like, hey, this affects us all. Like we're here, bad people in the world. Um, you know, I got that. But in America, it did the same. But it's at what point do we kind of reflect on the last 13 years and realize, um, and now now we have an all-volunteer force. Um, but when do we reflect and go, okay, are we making the world a safer, better place? Do people look at America, especially in the Muslim world, with, you know, do they look at us differently? And I, and I think we've done you know, a poor job as a country, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's like this, the brand of America abroad has not gotten any better. And it was, it's, it's a problem that I think is tied to, you know, you know, this thank you for your service. But when you look at it on, when you dig deeper, it's a cultural thing in America that I think it's time for Americans to wake up. It's like, look, that's great. You can respect the veterans, but 
you know, we're not heroes, we're ordinary people. And we have some serious issues to deal with in America. And, and the one of the things I appreciate now is I have a few friends that are, are in politics. They've been elected as congressmen and they have, they've seen things from the different lens. They've seen the villagers in Afghanistan and the terrible situations they're put into, um, caught between the Taliban and, and the US or coalition forces. And so I think that a lot of veterans have a lot more they have a lot to give and, and lend to the democracy in America because they're they're a lot more compassionate than I think people would think. What drives me crazy are the people that, you know, they, they're beating the war drums and like, yeah, I would kill them all and all this stuff. It's like, wait a minute, you know, like you're saying that, you know, from the comfort of your computer, um, you know, in a safe in America, you know, working on Wall Street or whatever, but that's not like war is ugly. It's a nasty business. And that part, you know, that, that maybe comes with connected to that. Thank you for your service. I, you know, I, I don't buy into that bullshit, whatever. Cause these guys are, I see them cause I'm on, you know, social media, they're on my Facebook page sometimes. And we'll put, post an article about something and, you know, right away it's like, Oh yeah, I would kill them all. Like we just need to kill all the Muslims. Like, wait a minute. I, I have one of my best friends, a Muslim, he's a brain surgeon and a, and a guy I go surfing in Bali with. You know, like, it's not like, it's not that simple. You know, there's the Muslim community is, is it, it's a beautiful culture over there in the Middle East. And it's not like, there's a radical element there that, that needs to be dealt with, I think differently than what we've, what we've, how we've been approaching it of late, but that, I don't know if we want to. Well, you've written you've deep. written a book called, uh, you've written a book called The ISIS Solution. And I've heard you talk about this. You, you talk about uh, the need to address the root cause that promotes violent terrorism as a, of as a means of change. You mentioned that um, the current strategy is a little like playing whack-a-mole. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, if you measure, like if you look at it as a, you know, in digital media, we have KPIs, whatever, key performance indicators. And if you, if you put KPIs against, you know, we call a KPI, let's say, can we all agree that the world's a safer place since 9-11? Can we, you know, is the Middle East a more stable place? Um, you know, are we in a better place uh, as a country, financially, culturally, socially? And I think we're much worse off than we started in 9-11. And, and so, you know, the U.S. and coalition special operations machine is well-oiled. It can go out there and prob probably pull Putin out of his rack in the middle of the night as much as, you know, he wouldn't like to think about that and, and you know, put a hood over his head and, and haul him off. We're that good um, with the intel and the, the capability. We, we aren't good at addressing, you know, what creates... A modern day terrorist like what's social cultural economic situations that are happening right now that are causing um, people to to take up arms against you know the rest of the free world and and when you look at a group like isis they're recruiting from and it's really isis is this radical islamic movement you know you could call it whatever you want like did we win the war on al-qaeda i don't think so they're still out there um but we've we've not addressed that root cause of what what is you know causing people in the UK that are frustrated to go I'm going to go join ISIS, and it's like if we don't think about that and start addressing it, we're going to continue this whack-a-mole game. And uh, Jack Murphy, who was one of the writers in the book with me, he you know he's like yeah he's like it's you know, when you think about the definition of insanity, it's doing the same thing, expecting a different result. And that's the situation we're in. And we've lost our way. America's foreign policy has drifted into cloudy water. And you have a bunch of people and organizations in this cloudy pond and no one, everyone's swimming around, not seeing anything and bumping into each other. And Libya is a very clear uh, picture of you have the CIA in Libya um, trying to rein in the, the 
yellow cake uranium on the black market, all these weapons. They're developing their list of assets and recruiting spies and paying militia members. They're doing their own thing. You've got the the Joint Special Operations Command and the Delta Commandos, and they're running down a list, executing a kill list, talking directly to the White House. And a lot of people on that kill list are also on the CIA payroll. And so imagine the creation, what that creates with, with breaking trust in that very small region. Then you have the State Department trying to, you know, there's Ambassador Stevens trying to promote diplomacy and figure out what's get a read on the political landscape, and no one's talking to each other. And that magnified on a global scale is what we've been doing for the last 13 years. And that is not, nobody knows what the plan is. I asked Mary Walker at a dinner, oh, this was probably four or five years ago. She was the Air Force general counsel under Bush for eight years. And I asked her at this big dinner, you know, I'm this little guy just starting my small media company and was a former Navy SEAL, but I'm sitting, I'm, my law firm throughout this dinner and I'm sitting next to these like industry heads of defense, you know, and they're just like very powerful guys, like CEO of, you know, Lockheed Martin. And, and it's my turn to ask the question. And I said, Mary, it's like, look, I gave her a little background. And I said, I had a very clear idea. And I think if I asked anyone on the street in Australia or America back in 2002, what we we're doing in Afghanistan, fast forward to today, I don't know what our strategy is. And I have friends that are over there that don't know what they're doing over there. Like, what is, what are we trying to accomplish? Like, is there a clear strategy for being in Afghanistan? Like, what's the end game? And she says, I don't know. And I, I give her credit for being so honest about it. And then we have this conversation around, around that answer, but these, you should see the look on the face of these defense industry guys who were like, like there's, they thought like we had the plan, right? Like they're making their business off, off the defense industry. They were shocked. Right. And I said, how can people be so blind to this? And, and that, to me, that's what's happening now where with ISIS is we had a very clear strategy with the invasion of Iraq to topple Saddam. You can argue about it all day long, whether we should have been in there, but I think we had a responsibility to, to stay there and and at least help manage that process. But we yanked out because it wasn't popular politically anymore to be there. And we left it in a state of chaos. It's civil war, unrest. Um, and now you have, you know, the people that, that have come to power in, in ISIS control a very large region of Iraq and Syria. And in the recruiting on the internet, social media, um, and they've there's ISIS has become cool. And that's what I argue in the in the book. It's like we need to think about ways to, to to deal with these root problems. But I would be spending. I don't want to spend a billion dollars on missiles and guns. How about we buy some broadcast, you know, TV commercials, radio. I want it to be at you know the soccer stadiums in 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 uh, the UK, Australia, US, Europe playing these, like hire these ad advertisers, the global advertising agencies and push out this massive campaign that makes being a radical terrorist uh, pushes it out of fashion. And that's like, to me, a, a much better way to spend the fucking money than, than on bombs and then killing more bad guys, you know? See, someone like me, who's, I'm, you know, probably a mostly centrist, I lean on the left-hand side, a little. I lean right and left. Well, but then, <laughs> here's, here's what I'm saying. Yeah, like, but then, if you ask me about other things, I'll I'll lean on my right foot, and you gotta say I lean on my left foot. And I think I represent a lot of. I don't think most people. I think most people are left about some things and right about some things. So I could say that, all right. But I've not been to war. Yeah. I've not seen what you've seen. I've not heard what you've heard. I don't even think to know what you know and can't unknow. So for you to say that. As a strategies, that sounds that's pretty powerful stuff, man. Yeah, that's no, it's that's it's why we wrote we wrote that book in in seven days. <laughs> right. Yeah. We. I mean, it all it was all inside of us, and me and the other yeah. two authors, and we had. Well, surely you can't be alone. Surely, you yeah. can't be alone in that in no. those thoughts. No, not at all. And I think it. That's. I feel almost. Um, 
trying to, to to choose the right word here to describe this. I feel almost obligated to do that because I have friends that aren't here that that sacrificed everything, and I want the world to be a better place for for them, for their children, for my children, for you and I. And it's like I don't have a problem standing out, and it does. Uh, I appreciate that it perturbs people like that because I'll go on Fox News and they're expecting me to just you know, toe the party line and, and I'll come off. And on live TV is a beautiful thing, you know, live news. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just give it to them between the eyes, right? Uh, no pun intended, but they, uh, no, I think it's important to to push people to that different way of thinking. Because it's, uh, you know, I do realize that I have a platform and a voice and, and we've taken on the news side of, of what we do, a very center position and, look, we call it how we see it. We're going to talk about important issues, mm. um, but we're not going to get, we're not going to get political. We're not going to start just feeding one side or the other. It's like, look, we've got, these are important issues and we need to stop thinking about in America, who's on this political party or this or that political party. That's bullshit. It's like, we need to come up with like real solutions and plans and people that can execute against that. And, and that's uh you know that's what that's what I'm all about. And, and is that why you started the media company? No. <laughs> um, Force Twelve Media. It's, yeah. it's the Force Twelve uh, is where you can see all the uh, the outlets that are there. The first site. So I got into digital media. I was I was working as a part time. I was started to write for some magazines and get published, and found that I just really enjoyed it. And then I ended up working for a a company in the digital space that that was military related and they were bought by a big, you know, New York public company. And I just saw that they, they just kind of lost their soul and they, they didn't understand the military. And here they had this great domain name, which I won't mention. <laughs> I don't want to give them any free PR, but I, I decided to start my own site. And at the time there was all this emerging stuff coming out about the special operations community and you could go to Discovery Channel and watch something. You could read a book, go to a movie, nothing on the internet. So I started a site, softrep.com, and, and the name stands for Special Operations Forces Report. And it was really the, the concept we were going to provide an in, a window into the special ops community, not in a way that we're going to talk about all the secret stuff and tactics, but it's like, look, these are who these units are. We talk about these, you know, Australian commandos, the... Um, Polish Grom, the Navy SEALs, and 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 I was so when I recruited the writing team for that site, what I found when they started producing content is they'd see something in the New York Times or in the Wall Street Journal on Fox News, and they go, "Look, these guys have it wrong. Like that's not what's happening over there." And they wanted to write about that stuff and dig into it, and so the site took a very sharp right turn. Um, you know, and not not to say that in a political way, it just was like it was a turning point where I recognized, wow, these guys are like really intelligent. They've been all over the world, and they want to they want to like talk about these issues. And so we started breaking news stories. We we broke the story a lot of Benghazi. We we were first, and the New York Times, you know, had to quote stuff that we've done. So that was how the birth of that site. And it's our, one of our biggest sites today. It was just, it was fascinating to me to go, this is this really like special thing we have here and to, to like bring in more writers and, and eventually turn the, the site over to my friend, Jack, who runs, runs the site and wrote ISIS, the ISIS solution with me. Um, those guys are doing good work, you know, and I still write for the site occasionally, uh, but we're talking about important issues. And now we have a big enough audience to where we have people's attention. I've had people in the government call me and, and ask us to take stories down. And I said, you know, are you, you, know, are you familiar with the First Amendment? <laughs> this is my constitutional right. And I've had public affairs officers call me and say, "That's we want that taken down. I said, well, you know, like we're citizens of this country. Like that's, you don't get to say that anymore. So it's, I think, and it's an interesting conversation and maybe another time you and I can have about news media because I see it, it's become more news entertainment. And you know what, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, they don't want to lose that White House press pass. And so there is a bit of that tail wagging the dog going on because I see it. And when we, we, we're outside of that circle of influence, 
and I see it because we get the phone calls and we just still like, it's like, look, you, and, and the, it puts some people in a very weird position because you have a group of high profile veterans now, you know, we've got probably six or seven New York Times bestselling writers on staff. And, and these guys are like heroes in America's eyes. And how are the government going to go like crack down on us? <laughs> so trying to use that responsibly and, and to talk about these important issues is, um, is, is what we're all about. And, and I'm really proud of what those guys have like built, you know, and continue what Jack and the, the team over there continues to do with that site. Um, but digital media was something I just accidentally got into and, and was fascinated by. And we started our podcast. We started doing our own, producing our own TV content. We have a spec ops channel that's, that's hosted on specialoperations.com. We did a documentary on the Polish Grom last year. You know, we're probably going to go to Australia at some point and, and do some stuff with those guys. But it's interesting to build this platform and and have as a creative guy, it's fascinating to like come up with an idea and now be at a point where I can just create the concept and fund it myself. I don't have to go through a production company. I don't have to deal with a network. Yeah. I am the network. It's a whole new world, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I am the network. Yeah. yeah. And so. you've got now, you've got networks approaching you to yeah. create content for them rather than the other yeah. way around. Yeah, exactly. And I'm at the point where I'm, I'm on the fence about whether I want to do that or not. Like, I just don't know if that's something I want to, I want to give up. You know, it's fascinating and it's meeting, you know, cool, interesting people like yourself and getting into this whole other world. And it's fascinating to find myself in this situation yeah. now. And um, I, I ran into Paul Giamani. Yeah, the actor. At, at a jazz club in the West Village. And I had this incredibly gorgeous girl with me and, and Paul recognized me. I, I was, I recognized him, but I could. Like he, rec I could tell. Like we had this moment there, and it was just interesting. Wow! So, but he's a great. I love that movie, Sideways. Having a um, but having an independent, very credible opinion on foreign policy. Yeah. Uh, that has such a huge audience is a very powerful thing. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely. And we, you know, we try. Maybe you don't want that White House press. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. I'll, I'll pass. I don't need it. Um, I pick up my friends that are in the CIA. They just call them or shoot them an SMS, right? Um. Well, mate, I'm, uh, I could, my my little recorder here is is running low on bat, so I've got I've got two questions that, and then we'll then, sure. we'll then we'll jet. You've mentioned a few times now, and when we first met, you mentioned the uh, the SAS that you work with the Australian yeah. uh, guys. What's uh, your experience like with those guys? Very positive, um, and I would say out of all the coalition units that I've worked with. You know the SAS or they're they're top top guys. I mean, I the you know the Australians, the Norwegians, um, you know the New Zealand SAS guys. But the the Australian guys, I was impressed. You know, and I we we uh, we got to spend a lot of time with them because in Kandahar, our camp was right next to the Australian guys, and um, made some good friends. I'm still connected with guys to this day, and um, you know they just top guys i mean they they i know the missions that they did and went out on and you know, i know i know they lost some guys over there too um they had a vehicle landmine strike in 2001 or two but great guys i mean and they have a great reputation on the international stage and and within the special operations community and and not not to take anything away from other units but the you know they do have that reputation and, and i know other countries that don't Right. There is countries where you're like, ah, oh, I just don't want to work with those guys. Um, they're good guys, but maybe they're they just don't they're not trained up to to speed. And you don't want to be you don't want to be driving on a racetrack, right? At three hundred miles an hour with somebody on the track with you that isn't quite you know, they maybe they maybe could get there, but they don't have this they don't they're not trained up to that level of performance. And the Australian guys for sure are are at that level, without a doubt. I'm sure they'll be happy to hear that. Yeah. I'm sure they know it too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. The, the the last question is: uh, you mentioned before the breathing exercise that you teach your snipers. Is yeah. there anything you can share? Because I know people listen to this. I, t I talk about my anxiety a bit on this show, and, yeah. and people, you know, I've I've come clean uh, on this show about living with a mental illness, and yep. um, there are some breathing things that I do, but I'm sure that you've got some mad skills. <laughs> well, you know what? I I don't. I think. 
a lot of what we do is just borrowed from from yoga and a lot of these breathing exercises. And it, the idea it it's it's around meditation. It's it doesn't matter. You could take one minute out of your day and go to a quiet place and and really breathe and focus and focus on something positive um, or a task or a goal that you want. And that's kind of where goal and task oriented in, in the sniper program. But it's no different from you know, meditation and, and slowing your breathing down and just pushing all of the white noise to the side. Um, that's, I mean, it's as simple as that. Right. And I think, you know, for, for people listening who maybe think that stuff is hokey, I mean, here is a SEAL sniper, SEAL sniper instructor, like advocating for it. It works. You know, <laughs> that stuff works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Are people, do people fall like, as a you know, you talk, you hear a resting bitchy face. You know what that is? No. Like a resting bitchy face is when someone's just the way they're just sitting, just thinking off into space. Yeah. But their face looks looks cranky. <laughs> I like that. Is people's default position, in your experience, one of falling on the side of good or falling on the side of causing mischief? Um, I guess in what context? Like, is this what, who would be? Like, to gen, gen, just generally, just people that you've met around the world, you've met people from all parts of the world. Do people yeah. generally, do you think they're, it's easy, they, they want to be good more than they want to be not good? Um, you know, as a, like people, like general, as a general yeah, rule. Yeah, like the people that you've, you've met. Have you, is your I, encounter with humanity generally? That's, I get it now. I, I would say my, encounter with humanity is, is that I do think the majority of the people, you know, on this planet traveling, you know, thousand miles an hour uh, around the sun or whatever it is, like my, my, my own son would probably know better than I, I think I believe in humanity. I believe, I believe in humanity. I just read Stephen Hawking's book, um, A Moment in Time. Fascinating, you know, and, you know, to hear him talk, I was so fascinated with that book, you know, to hear like just what we're capable of as a, you know, as a, you know, people living on this planet and, and what we've come and how far we've come in such a short time. And what I really appreciate about Hawkins book was that he wrote it in a way that everyone could understand. Um, and that he wrote it in a way that was inclusive. Like it didn't exclude religion, the belief in God, you know, he makes his position on that clear, but he leaves space open for discovery. And I, and I think back in time, we would, everyone thought the world was flat and you're crazy to think otherwise. And so I, I really appreciate that. And I think that, you know, my experience with humanity is that when we get down in the same room, whether it's you and I sharing a coffee over, over a podcast in the West Village, we realize that we're we're all going through the same shit and the same crazy life and we have the same problems. And so my, whether it's a sharing a cup of tea with a, a village elder in, in Afghanistan or, you know, sharing a hookah with somebody at, in Dubai and experiencing these different cultures, going to Poland, Germany, and going, we're just, we're all in this together. And when you realize that and have those cross-cultural connections, I think it makes you a better person, but it also... To me, it it's a, it it inspires me because I do I you know we there's a lot of bad stuff on the news but you know I wish there was that good news channel where I could <laughs> tune into that. It's like here's this guy you know just shared a cup of tea with this ISIS guy that realized it was a terrible thing to be a part of and you know it's, that kind of stuff. So I I would say my experience has been generally positive. So, mate, this has been an exceptional conversation. I'm really grateful for your time. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for sharing. It's really, time it's really good. I'm going to shoot your photo, okay? Yeah, right, right, for sure. Okay, thanks, man. And that was Brandon Tyler Webb. That's the show. Please follow Brandon on Twitter at B-R-A-N-D-O-N-T-W-E-B-B and please join me in thanking him for being on the show. Let him know that you heard him here. Please, if anything that he said resonated with you, do let him know on Twitter. He's there. He's quite avid on Twitter. Um, and do listen to his podcast, sofrep.com. Sofrep.com is their podcast. And it's, as we discussed, it's a very interesting, very fascinating independent opinion on uh, the world at the moment. Really interesting stuff to listen to. I hope that shed some light on what it means, or at least a little like gives you a little glimpse into what it is to 
be the person that goes into a war zone and live the rest of your life carrying with you the things that you did in that war zone. Um, and again, I must thank Brandon so much for being so gracious with his time and so respectful in his, you know, his descriptions of what went on uh, and not glorifying it in any way. Really, he's a really interesting guy. Um, I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend reading his book, uh, The Red Circle. He's a really interesting cat. Hey, thank you so much for being here. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes. Subscribe to the mailing list, osherginsberg.com. If you need to email me, just email me through the mailing list. I read them all. Take care of yourself this week, my friends. Yeah, look after yourself. Be kind. Sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. And I'll talk to you next week. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.